I want to read a passage. It's going to be a little bit of a lengthy passage, but uh, I'm going to read from 1 Timothy chapter 6, and, uh, and then from there we'll get into some of the things that I want to say. But uh, So I'm going to go straight there. 1 Timothy 6, from the end of verse 2, it says this, and I'm reading from the NIV. It says, These are the things you are to teach and insist on. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, they are conceited and understand nothing. They have an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction between people of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In the sight of God, who gives life to everything, And of Christ Jesus, who while testifying before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring about in his own time. God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in a in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to him be honor and might forever. Amen. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Can I pray and then we'll get into the message. Father, I pray for us uh, this evening. I just ask you that you would help us, every single one of us, myself included, to take hold of the life that is truly life the full life, the fullness of life that is in you, Lord. I pray that you would help us to lift our gaze from this present moment uh, upon you and upon your glory, your wonder, your might, your goodness, and that in that, in the gazing upon the beauty of the Lord, we would see the life that is truly life. In Jesus' name, amen. So, I'm not going to preach on money per se this uh, evening, which is a lot of what's covered in this uh, passage. And actually, in, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, there's a lot of difficult topics that are covered, things that almost at times Paul seems to just gloss 
over, just pass by. I mean, he's talking about wealth, he's talking about poverty, he's talking about slavery uh, at the beginning of the chapter, he's talking about charlatanism and life, and he's covering lots of different topics, and he doesn't kind of resolve them all um, so that they're neatly packaged and give us all the answers on that. He seems to, at some points, just fly through them and leave us asking sometimes more questions and having answers for. But I think there is something that he's doing in this passage, which is what I want to talk about this, this evening, is he talks a little bit about what philosophers and theologians uh, call the telos of life. Um, so Aristotle said, what makes us human is our telos, our, our purpose, the fact that as humans, we have purpose, we have destiny. And uh, philosophers talk about this, about what is the aim, what is the direction, what is the purpose of your and our lives. And I think something of what Paul is going to get us to think about and what he's going to get us to question in this passage is to question something of the direction of our lives. Where is our life going? What are we aiming at? What are you and I aiming at right now in our lives? What is the goal for our lives? And uh, if you had to stop for a moment to think, uh, as I've had to do, and I think uh, it's a good question to ask ourselves every now and then. What is your vision of the good life? If you had to stop and think that, um, I think uh, for, for some of us, our vision of the good life has maybe been a little bit altered over the last 18 months. Um, I think the good life is one without masks, or, you know, like, there's some simplicity to that answer that maybe wasn't there two years ago, or maybe just inner peace or safety or happiness or job satisfaction, uh, wealth, power, maybe, um, um, success, fame. Uh, there, there could be a whole list of things that maybe encompasses something of our vision of what we imagine the good life to look like. What would it be? Do you want to be more successful than your peers? Do you want to, uh, you know, live in a nice home with a happy family without any problems where we have Sunday lunches together, etc., etc. You know, all of us will have some kind of idea, some kind of vision, even if we haven't articulated it before, of what we imagine the good life to look like. Uh, it is something of what we aim at. I was listening to a TED talk by a guy called Nat Wes. He's an economist and. Uh, He's got a TED Talk on expectation, which truly is fascinating and disheartening at the same time. And uh, his study is on human contentment. And uh, one of the things that he finds uh, in, in his economic kind of study of human contentment is that we as human beings tend to be content when our reality exceeds our expectation. So basically, in his kind of summary of how to live a content life, is basically don't aim high. Just have no expectation, and then when reality exceeds that, you're like, oh, I'm living a good life. You know? I thought it would be really bad, but it's, you know, it's okay. In fact, he goes on to say that all the studies show this, is that you will be happier when you earn more than your peers. 
and your friends. So people don't want to earn the same as their friends. They want to earn more. And in fact, they are more discontent when they earn the same as their peers. They actually need to earn more to be happier. And their studies have shown that people are happier when they are perceived to be better looking than everyone else in the room. So next time someone invites you to a bra, you may know that they've got ulterior motives. But isn't that kind of like a sad thought? That uh, kind of what he is aiming at is something of the Western perception of what brings about true happiness. That we need to be more successful, better looking, more powerful than everyone else for us to reach a state of contentment or to reach a state of happiness. Um, and, and that's often what we're aiming for. We're aiming for that promotion. We're aiming for a better salary. We're aiming to look better than everyone else, etc., etc. If I had to ask you a second question now, if we have to think, what is our vision of the good life? Question number one. If I ask you a second question now, is this, like how would you rate right now your current state of contentment? If we had to put it on like a sliding scale of one to 10, with one is I'm extremely discontent, and 10 being like I'm so content, I'm like gonna explode with contentment, or whatever the best way of describing that is. But if, if you had to rate yourself on a scale of one to 10, where would you put yourself? It would be interesting to hear everyone's answer in the room, and I'm not gonna ask you to do that. For some, you, you might make everyone envious, and for others, people will be wondering what is going on with their life. Now, if I have to be honest about my own life, uh, I probably thought I was higher up on the scale than I think I really am right now, and that's pro probably for a number of reasons. I think uh, I'm, I'm in, I've been studying for the last five years, and I'm right now in the last stretch of that, and so doing assignments and tests and finishing the last stretch, I envy people who aren't doing that right now, so my contentment with that is quite low. Um, you know, there, there's obviously things like just COVID and the fact that you just don't feel like you see people like you used to. You're so used to seeing people in front of masks. Uh, you know, like there's so much of our life that has been disrupted with what has been going on that probably my levels of contentment is down. In fact, I think probably even my view of heaven and hell has probably changed in the last 18 months. I think heaven is a place where we can hug each other and be friends and give each other high fives and not wear masks. And people in hell is a place where we all wear masks, have a 1.5 meter bubble where we can't come near each other, and people endlessly debate whether we should be pro or anti-vaccine. But... Uh, but where would you land? Like, what would your number be? Because something of what I want to talk about, what we will get right into now, is the idea of contentment. Is where does our contentment come from? Um, and how, in this life, in the midst of all these different circumstances that happen, the unpredictability of what life can look like, 
um, in the temporiness of beauty and fame and wealth. How can we find contentment? Um, and so that is something of what this passage talks about, something of what Paul is talking about as he's, in one sense, asking us the question, what is the direction of our lives? Where are we going? What are we aiming at? And uh, there's, this, there's a specific part in this passage that has really gripped me over the last while as I've thought through the book of Timothy. I've been gripped by this passage, and it's a contrast that Paul makes. It's a contrast between those who use godliness, Paul does this deliberate contrast, those who use godliness as a means for financial gain, as a contrast with those who have godliness with contentment, which he says is great gain. It's like this contrast between those who are content and those who are not. Those who are using spirituality as a means of gain and those who find God and he is in and of himself the great gain. And I think the question one of the questions that Paul is posing to us is this, are we using God or are we using spirituality, we could say, uh, as a means to an end? Or is God an end in and of himself? And uh, I guess that's a question we could all ask ourselves in this room because we've all somehow made us way here on a Sunday afternoon in a beautiful Durban day. We made our way to church, sitting here, uh, being part of worship, hearing a message being spoke. I guess we can ask ourselves this question, why are we here in this room? Is my search uh, for God or my journey or my spirituality a means to an end? Or is God himself satisfactory? Um, and now, I don't want to chase us away with our answer to that, but I want us to think through that as we think about how God is and of himself the only true source of our contentment. So what does it mean to use God as a means to an end? Well, I think we live in South Africa, and South Africa is plagued by, I guess, this very question. It is plagued by the prosperity gospel. Um, I was studying with a, a, a person whose uh, husband left her because he was going to become an apostle and famous and this and that, and there was a whole bunch of lies and that going behind the scene, um, and she just wouldn't go down that journey. But he became really wealthy, using religion as a means to an end, a charlatan in, in one sense. People using spirituality as their means to taking them towards their vision of the good life, health, wealth, happiness, and whatever it is that we want to say. Or, in the words of the famous Steve Harvey, he says, why do you keep imagining yourself with a second home? Why do you keep dreaming of opening a business one day? Because that's what God wants you to have. So, why do you keep imagining a better car than your neighbor? Well, in the words of Steve Harvey, because that's what God wants you to have. It's religion, it's spirituality, it is using God 
as a means to an end. And we look at that, and it seems so obviously wrong. But I guess in the same sense, sometimes we all do that in one form of another. We come because we feel broken, we feel empty, we wanting God to fix up our lives. Our marriage may not be perfect, our, we may have an addiction or something, and we don't know where else to go, and we come and we say, God, can you just sort out this problem? Can you just fix this issue in my life? Can you just get it resolved so I can get on with my vision of the good life? So I can keep on living towards my goal of health, wealth, happiness, family, fulfillment, whatever it is that may be on our list. We come in the hope that God is going to help us along that journey towards our vision of a good life. God becomes a means of progress for us, a means of gain, a means of us fulfilling our dream for our life. Now, I just want you to know I'm not trying to be insensitive to the fact that I think probably all of us, and uh, um, especially at a time in this kind of season of the world's life, probably all of us have very real issues that we need God's help with. And God deeply cares about our issues. One of my favorite passages in Scripture is, is in uh, Exodus chapter 2 and 3, and it talks about God, the God, the God of gods, the King of kings, who sees the affliction that His people are going through, and He hears their cry, and He responds to their cry. He hears their affliction. One of my things that I love about the Gospels is that it talks about when Jesus heals someone, it talks about Him being moved with compassion. He does not just do things because He can. He does them being moved with compassion. He sees and hears and feels the pain we go through and reacts. And so God hears and knows and understands what we are going through. It's, this is not a moment to, I'm not trying to build a picture that is insensitive to our needs and our cry to God to help with those needs. Rather, what I think this passage is trying to do and what hopefully I'm trying to do is to get us to see that our greatest and true need for satisfaction, joy, only comes from God himself, not, per se, from just a problem being solved. Tim Keller quotes um, a, a columnist from, from a, a publication in New York, uh, who uh, this columnist has got to see and meet many people who ended up becoming famous and knew them before and after their fame. And uh, her name's Cynthia Hamill, and she says, She says this I pity celebrities. No, I really do. Uh, and she mentions some's name. They were once perfectly pleasant human beings, but now their wrath is awful. I think when God wants to play a really rotten practical joke on you, he grants you your deepest wish and then laughs merrily when you realize you want to kill yourself. You see sly 
went on to fame, I won't mention their names. They worked, they pushed, and the morning after each of them became famous, they wanted to take an overdose because that giant thing they were striving for, that fame thing that was going to make them okay, that was going to make their lives bearable, that was going to provide them with personal fulfillment and happiness had happened, and they were still them. The disillusionment turned them howling and insufferable. Here's a secular author kind of pinning down this idea that when we are trying to use God as a means to an end or anything else, that there is something that all what we hope for is just not enough. It's just not fulfilling enough. How painful are her own words as a secular author to say that when God wants to play a rotten joke on you, he just gives you what you want. And in some ways, I sometimes think that is true. But why, why are we not fulfilled by these things? I guess that's something of what we want to answer, because I think that's something of what Paul is talking about, that, you know, these people end up in strife and quarreling and this and that, like the end of using God as a means to an end just doesn't end in the life of contentment. Why? And uh, ultimately, because as Christians, we believe that our fulfillment, our contentment, our source of joy can only come from God himself. And I'll give us two reasons why and then kind of try and wrap up after that. But why? First reason, I think, is this, is because you and I have a need that only God can satisfy. In the, in the words of a cheesy Christian pop artist, Plum, there's a God-shaped hole in all of us and the restless soul is searching. There's a God-shaped hole in all of us, and it's a void only he can fill. Or, as Augustine puts it, uh, the famous philosopher, he says, our heart is restless until it rests in you. C.S. Lewis said, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is such a thing as water. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, then most, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Uh, I want to read a, a passage from John chapter 6. It says this, it says, when they found him, Jesus, on the other side of the, the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? And true to Jesus' style, he doesn't answer their question. He says, Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the works of God? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? 
What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father whom gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Jesus is not talking about food here. We, we totally miss the point if we think Jesus is talking about food. In fact, he goes on, uh, and you will see the disciples come to the recognition that Jesus himself is the true fulfillment and satisfaction in life. He is the bread of life, the only one that can satisfy and sustain us. He is going way beyond food. He's talking to your and I's greatest needs of satisfaction. And there is a discontentment that I think every human being has. It's kind of what Plum is talking about. It's what Augustine is talking about. It's what C.S. Lewis, uh, the, the author of the Narnia series, is talking about. That there is a desire, there is a discontentment, there is a need for fulfillment that cannot be fulfilled in this world. Or as that uh, uh, columnist writes, that sees all their friends get some of your friends get the success beyond anything they could imagine, only to be worse off than they were before that success, because it hasn't fulfilled a desire that can only be fulfilled, as Jesus highlights, by the bread of life, by him himself. You and I have a discontentment in life that we often try and fill with things like food. If, if you're like me, when I'm discontent, I eat, I want food. Junk food in particular, I know it's not good. Don't follow my example on that. But we have these things that we use to try and fulfill the discontentment in our life. And uh, what these philosophers, what Jesus is highlighting is that there is a contentment there is a desire that only comes from God himself. We were made for God, and in God alone do we find true satisfaction. But God is also the only one who can truly satisfy our need for love. You and I, we've been created not just to be loved, but to love. And it is only in God that that can truly be full, for full. Uh, Tim, Tim Keller says this. He says, To be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved, well, it's a lot like being loved by God. It is what we need more than anything else. What Tim Keller is highlighting at this is that you and I want to, sometimes secretly because we don't let that on, is we want to be fully known and truly loved. 
It's part of the reason why we have so many wars, even with our closest friends, even with my wife. You know, why we have these walls that we sometimes put up, it's because we're scared that if people really know who we are, and really know what's going on inside of us, really know something of our true life story, then maybe they won't love us. And as Tim Keller says, that is our deepest fear. But our deepest need is to be fully known and to be fully loved. Romans 5 verse 6 says this, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What we see in Jesus what we see in him is that while you and I are in our worst state, he says, not while, like we don't have anything to offer. He says, maybe someone might die for a righteous person. Maybe someone more, like more chance someone would die for a good person. But who's going to die for the worst of us? Jesus sees the worst of us. And he doesn't just see the worst of us before him. He sees all of our unfaithfulness when we turn our hearts towards him. The fact that at different times in our lives and our journey with Christ, he sees that we will betray him. We will go after other things. Our hearts will grow cold. He sees all of that and he loves us. He dies for us. He demonstrates the greatest love that can be known the love of complete sacrifice. So Jesus fulfills our deep need for love, this love that we are fully known and deeply loved, that he sees you, he sees myself, he sees all the brokenness, all the darkness, all the pain, all the guilt, and that does not cause him to run out the door. He sees that and loves. But he is also, he isn't just our, we don't just receive the love of God, but from his love, we are able to love truly. You know, uh, it is because he loved us, the scriptures say, that we can love. He is the source of true love. Augustine, who I've quoted uh, already, he says, the real problem with humanity is disordered loves. Not only do we not embrace the right loves, but we love the wrong things. Or, as he says, we get the priorities on our loves, on what we love wrong. Augustine goes on to say that the essence of our sin is disordered love that we love the wrong things or that we value the wrong things in the wrong order. So, simply put, the Bible calls us to love God above all else, to love neighbor as we love ourselves, but we end up loving our careers or we love our families or we love our car or we love our home. We put the order of our loves wrong. But in Christ, 
in Christ, not only does he fulfill our deepest need to be loved, but he comes and he reorders our loves and puts them right so that we'd learn to love him and God supremely. We learn to love neighbor as we love ourselves and so on and so on. He, in one sense, puts the order right. And in that, in that we find contentment. I think discontentment, in some sense, comes from disordered loves, loving the wrong things in the wrong place. A.W. Tozer, in his, in his really good book, a, a book that had a profound impact on my life, Pursuit of God, he says this in chapter 2, uh, it's called The Blessedness on, of Possessing Nothing. And in this famous chapter he goes through essentially saying that part of the heart-wrenching process of spirituality and discipleship is God reordering our loves. That what happens with Abraham and Isaac is God wretches out the idolatrous love of Abraham from his heart and puts himself back in that right place. Toza goes on at the end of the chapter to say this, it is only when our loves are reordered right, when we no longer have an idolatrous love for people or things, when God himself is the supreme affection of our hearts, that we are free to love truly. We are free to love without pain. And I guess I've just mentioned two things, but we could go on and say God fulfills our need for purpose, Christ fulfills uh, all of the different needs that we have in our life from meaning, etc., etc. But what I think what are we trying to say here when we talk about is God a means to an end or, or is he the end in and of himself? What, what am I? I trying to say. I'm trying to say this, that I think what Paul is challenging on, us on is that the telos of our life, the purpose, the direction, the aim of our life is not the things of this world which are so temporal, which he may, means there, that come and go. We brought nothing into this world, he says, and nothing we will take. But the source of life that is truly life, the vision of the good life, Paul is highlighting to us, is God himself. And that when we find Christ, when we allow our hearts to be filled with Christ, we allow ourselves to be filled with that which truly gives us contentment. Uh, so how, how do we do this? In, in short, I'm not going to give us 10 million steps because I don't think it quite happens like that. But there's this amazing passage in Philippians 4, and it says this, I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. 
famous passage. People put that on their cars, on their phones. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. What is Paul talking about here? He's talking about contentment. But he's talking that contentment is a learned response. What does he say? I have learned to be content. You kind of think that Paul just got it. You know, Paul saw Jesus, knocked him off the donkey. He was blind for a while. Someone comes, he gets healed. He's like, boom, content, woo, living his best life from that point. He's got it. Jesus, he's living in the dream. No, what does he say here? He's saying, I've learned the, the secret to being content. And Christ is the source of my strength in that process of learning. I've learned to be content because contentment is a learned process. We don't just jump from discontentment to contentment in a miraculous moment when Grant lays his hands on you and all of a sudden the world is made right. We learn to be content bit by bit. It is the process of discipleship. In discipleship, what happens? We have our loves reordered right. We have our mind renewed. We learn the process of enjoying and finding our satisfaction in Christ alone. It happens bit by bit by bit. How do we learn that? We learn that through prayer. We learn that through fellowship. We learn that through the preaching of the Word. We learn that when day by day we get up and read the Scriptures. In that process, often while it feels like nothing is going on, while you're praying and you're like, what is going on here? Is anything happening? While you're reading the Scriptures and you're like, I just read that passage four times. I still don't know what's going on. While you come to church when you're tired and you feel like your eyes are drooping and you're going to sleep and someone talks to you and you go home and you're like, why am I doing this? What happens is little by little by little, God by His Spirit is at work in you, training you to become more like Jesus. And not just to become more like Jesus, but to find your complete and utter satisfaction in Him and Him alone. Contentment is not something we just jump to. I would love that to be the story of my life right now. But it is a learned process as little by little we surrender our lives to the truth and to the beauty and to the work of God by His Spirit. Can I end off with this? Is I'm going to give you a little bit of an insight into my own selfish thinking. Um, but I don't know why this happens, but every now and then, for some reason or another, I will think about how Christians live in war-torn areas. Um, so, you know, whether it be Afghanistan or Syria or wherever there is toil at the, at the time, I think about that. And then I think crazy thoughts like, how on earth can they live there? How do you raise a family there? Like, like is it possible to live a good Christian life in a place like that? Just forgive me for my own thoughts but these are the thoughts that go through my, my life and then I'm like dear Lord please don't let it happen to me you know like I don't want to live there Lord this is great we have a bit of riots but whew, it's, it's not Afghanistan right now you know like the, these are the thinkings that go through my mind and it is at that point that I actually have to stop I have to stop and remember that Paul was shipwrecked, stone beaten, and found contentment. 
that for centuries of church history, the gospel thrived in adverse conditions, that where the gospel brought hope and joy to the poor, to the persecuted, to the downtrodden, to the exploited. The gospel gave people who you and I can never imagine having joy, deep contentment and satisfaction. Actually, for the most part of human history, people lived in extremely difficult circumstances. You and I, in one sense, are beneficiaries of the explosion of wealth and technology that has made our lives easier in the last century. I have to stop and remind myself that in difficult circumstances, people have found joy. I have to remind myself that when I think those thoughts, I'm actually not thinking about Christianity at all. I'm not thinking about Jesus at all. I'm thinking about the Western secular vision of comfort, security, and prosperity. The Western vision that tells me that there is no way to be content without those things. And then I have to remind myself again that the vision of our lives, of my life, it cannot be in this world. It isn't found in the abundance of of possessions, that true satisfaction that has brought many Christians throughout the ages, many Christians in incredibly difficult circumstances, and true satisfaction that will come to me will only come in Christ. That we find contentment not in the beauty of our circumstances, but in the beauty of Christ. As the psalmist said, for your love, O God, is better than life. For in him we find the fullness of joy. And only in Christ do you and I find our true contentment.